Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm your host, Kurt Flagel, and on this particular show, our topic is actually a question. What is recovery? But before we get to that, I wanted to give a shout out to Chris Volwin, who has been hosting the show for the last three months on his own without me. After being co-host with me the three months previous to that, the show wouldn't be where it is without him, no doubt. I absolutely needed him in the beginning as a co-host. It's, I'm a relational person. I love to interact with other people. So it was vital for me to have Chris on the show. And it was vital for him as I took a break for three months that God very clearly led me to do. It was vital, as I said, for someone to lead the show. And he was willing to do that, having been co-host for, for the beginning. And so... Where Life Hurts, God Heals is, and this season, right now, is mainly due to Chris's influence. However, over the last three weeks, months, Chris has sensed God's leading to narrow his focus down to those things that he knows are his particular and unique giftings and his personality. And unfortunately for me and all of us, at least for this season, Life Hurts, God Heals is not one of them. So I just want to take this moment and say thank you, Chris. Thank you for your service to us. Thank you for your insight and your wisdom. Thank you for your care and your compassion. Thank you for making Life Hurts, God Heals so much better because of your involvement. Thank you, Chris. We appreciate you, and we would love to have you back anytime you want as a guest host. Until then, I'm sure we'll have other guest hosts and guests on the show. For this show, however, it's you and me as we go back to the question, which is also our topic for this particular show. What is recovery? I want to start off by telling you about something cool that is happening in the area in which I live. Multiple church communities have been gathering together over the last few months and discussing the possibility of bringing Celebrate Recovery to our area. Now, if you know anything about this particular ministry, it was started down in Southern California at Saddleback Church as a recovery ministry for people who are dealing with, as they would put it, hang-ups, habits, and hurts. So, in other words, that's all of us, right? So when it comes to this question, what is recovery, it's important for all of us to wrestle through this together because we're all in recovery from something. Maybe a better question to ask is, what are we recovering from? I want to take a minute to go through those three things, those hang-ups, habits, and hurts. Each one of these three descriptions represents something that hinders us from experiencing the life that God has for us. And so I think it's important for us to walk through each one as we seek to answer the question, what is recovery? Let's start with the word habit. What is a habit? It is typically someone or something we use as a coping mechanism to escape from things we feel are too uncomfortable for us to face. Now, what probably comes to mind for many people when I 
give that description is alcohol or drugs or gambling or pornography, things like that. But there are a wide variety of habits that we turn to to escape the uncomfortable in our lives. Could be a relationship. Could be somebody we go to over and over again rather than deal with our issues. So food could be that for us. Shopping could be that. Or binge-watching Netflix, which I think is a big deal for a lot of people these days, including me. All of these are escapes. People are things we turn to so that we don't have to face the next thing on the list, which is hang-ups. Our negative attitudes that are used to cope with people in adversity, anger, depression, fear, unforgiveness. We use our habits to escape dealing with our hang-ups. What's underneath our hang-ups? Where do these negative mental attitudes of anger and depression and fear and unforgiveness come from? They come from our hurts, which is the last thing on the list. Our hurts are our feelings, our emotional reactions to other people's behavior or to a disturbing situation. Our feelings of hurt can come from abuse, abandonment, codependency, relationship issues of any kind, really. So these are the things that Celebrate Recovery is all about. What recovery is all about. Helping us recover from our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups. So dealing with our habits helps us expose the hang-ups that are hiding underneath, which helps us, as we deal with the hang-ups, helps us expose and deal with the hurt underneath that. But is that what recovery is, getting to the hurt? Or is there something deeper that we need to deal with which is hidden deep in that hurt? Wherever there's pain that we haven't dealt with, the enemy of our souls sees an opportunity to speak lies into us through that pain that we don't even realize we're buying into. And those lies shape our view of God's identity and our own identity, which then creates our hang-ups, our negative mental attitudes about God and ourselves, which then lead us into habits so we don't have to deal with the pain or the negative mental attitudes we have because we're seeing God and ourselves from the wrong perspective. So the lies that we buy into become our perspective, which leads us to act out of that perspective, which is demonstrated in our habits. Our habits are an escape from the portrayal of God we have allowed the enemy to create out of our hurt, which we've agreed with and acted out of. Let me give you an example from my own personal experience. When I was around seventh grade, I was dating a girl already. Seventh grade dating a girl meant you saw her whenever you went to church or whenever you went to school or, you know, it it wasn't really dating. And in this particular instance, I was 
looking forward to going on a church retreat because she was going to be there. Well, my father found out about this, and he called me into his bedroom. I can still remember this, this moment clearly now, many, many years later. He's sitting in his chair at his desk. He's waiting for me to come into the room. But I won't. I stand tentatively in his doorway as he stares at me with this stern look on his face. And he says, I know that you like Amy and she is going to be on this retreat with you. If you touch her, I will break your arms. Now, in that moment, it was jarring to hear my father say those words. And by seventh grade, I'd learned not to disagree with him, at least out loud. But there's this passive-aggressive tendency that had already developed in me. I was not free to discuss these things with my father, to ask him why he felt the way he did about me kissing a girl. We didn't have that kind of relationship. So all my questions would go unanswered. And if, and I'm a why kind of guy. If you don't give me a good reason for not doing something, at least in the past, I typically would do it, especially when I was younger. And I knew that my dad wasn't going to break my arms. Not really. It was a threat. And it was a, in my view, it was a stupid threat. So I was determined to kiss this girl on this church retreat, which I did. And of course, inevitably, my father found out about it. And did he break my arms? No, he did not. But he brought me back into his room and he said these words, I'm disappointed in you. And those words hurt me deeply. I wish I could say that was the only time I ever heard those words from my father. But unfortunately, it seems like to me, at least from my memory, every time I was in trouble, he spoke those words to me. I'm disappointed in you. Like most of us as kids, I didn't have the coping mechanisms in place, the tools I needed to deal with that pain. So I just buried it inside. I had no one to talk to, no one to help guide me through it. So again, I just buried it deep inside of me. And in that place where the pain sat undealt with, unexamined, the enemy came in and began to speak lies. Lies that filtered into my subconscious, into my mental attitudes, into my hang-ups, and then into my habits. And the lie that I bought into was that I'm a disappointment. That's my identity. The enemy gave me a false identity. That I'm a disappointment, not just to my father, but to everyone around me, and more importantly, most importantly, I should say, to my heavenly father. Because of those words my earthly father spoke that I didn't deal with, that I was a disappointment. I adopted it. I allowed the enemy to lead me into adopting it as an identity, not only from my earthly father's point of view, but what I believed was my 
Heavenly Father's point of view. So deep down inside, I began to believe that my identity from God's point of view was a disappointment, that I was always going to be a disappointment to him. What do you think his identity was from my perspective? I saw him as a disapproving father, just like my earthly father, who didn't understand me and didn't want to know me because I was a disappointment. I wasn't worth the time and the energy to pay attention to, to interact with, to relate to. And I am a very relational person. So I had to, from my perspective anyway, I had to look to other people and other things to find worth and to find comfort rather than God. And therein came out of my hurt lies about the Heavenly Father and about myself, which created patterns of behavior. Well, first of all, which created hang-ups, mental, emotional reactions, which led to habits, and in my case, years of addiction to pornography. Yet, even though I had a lens, a viewpoint of who I saw God through, that was false. God was who he always is. Loving, caring, compassionate. And in his compassion, he pursued me to break through the lies I believed about him and myself and bring me into recovery of the truth. The tr his true identity and my true identity. That's what recovery really is meant to be. Recovering God's true identity and our true identity by exposing the lies that are hidden in the hurts, the hang-ups, and the habits that we're engaged in right now in our lives. God is in the process of helping us recover our true identity, <laughs> which we can only grasp to the level that we have recovered God's true identity. Now, of course, I can admit that this is my experience, mine alone, up to this point. But if it's meant to be all of our experiences, which I believe, then we should be able to find scriptural examples of God pursuing people to help them uncover and recover their true identity from God's perspective by first revealing more of who he truly is to them. Are there examples in scripture to demonstrate what I'm talking about? Yes, I believe there are. And if you have been a follower of Jesus, or at least a student of the Bible for any length of time, the story in scripture we're about to look at will be very familiar to you. But what I'm hoping for is that by the time we have gone through it today, you will have a new perspective on what God was doing with a man named Moses. So, let's look at Exodus chapter 3 together. But first, I think it would be helpful to get an overview of Moses' life up to this point through the lens of the first two chapters of Exodus. Moses was born to a Hebrew family living in Egypt, and in those days what that meant was they were slaves. 
So already we begin to see hurt developing. On top of that, the king of that era declared that all Hebrew baby boys must be killed. So, Moses' mother takes her son, who she loves, and basically abandons him. She puts him in a basket, puts him into the Nile River filled with crocodiles and all kinds of terrible things, and lets him go. Moses is found by the king, Pharaoh, his daughter, and she decides to adopt him and take him into her household. So right away we can see that Moses has an identity issue right from the beginning. He has hurts that he's dealing with, abandonment from his mother, and then being adopted and raised by another family, and yet he was nursed and, and weaned by his actual mother. So right away we can see there are hurts that develop in Moses' life from an early age. I would surmise the chief among those hurts being that he feels like a product of two different worlds and belongs to neither one. He's torn between being raised by an Egyptian family and being of Hebrew descent and even knowing his birth family at some level. Talk about hurts. And we can also see that that leads to hang-ups, which are hinted at in Exodus chapter 2. Moses has an anger issue, which is hinted at in chapter 2 when he confronts an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. We see the hint of his hang-up there, anger, that erupts into possibly a hint of a habit that Moses has, which is violence in his anger, because this time he kills the Egyptian in defense of the Hebrew slave. Right there, we can see the hint of a hang-up becoming a habit. Anger exploding to a point that it becomes murder does not happen overnight. That level of anger being expressed in violence that becomes murder happens over a gradual period of time in which a person gets used to responding in violence, escalating violence from their anger. We see that with Moses. As a result, Moses has to flee from Egypt because his grandfather, the king, finds out what he's done and is looking to kill him. So Moses' actions, based on his hurt and his hang-ups, leads to more hurt because he has to flee his homeland. Moses ends up settling in a place called Midian where he lives for the next 40 years. What's interesting about this period is if we look closely and carefully, we can see God's hand, at least a glimpse of God's hand, as he prepares Moses for a greater understanding of his own identity and God's true identity. For in this season, Moses has left the busy court life behind and is now a shepherd for his father-in-law, which means he spends a lot of time with sheep, taking care of them in stillness and quietness out in the wilderness. Recently, I had 
the wife of my spiritual director give me an example of how God gets us to the point where we're ready to see him for who he is at a deeper level anyway and see ourselves in that way too. She has a little jar of sand and water that she keeps on her shelf above her desk. And as she took it down to show me, it was pretty clear, like there was a clear difference between the water, clear water, and the sand at the bottom of the jar. But even in her motion of taking it off of the shelf and bringing it down to camera level for me to see, it began to jostle the jar a little bit, which caused a little of the sand to be disturbed and a cloud of silt a little bit of a cloud of silt to form in the water, so the water started to become murky. And Of course, she wanted to show me how if she shook the jar even more, that water, of course, would become even murkier. And her statement to me was, you know, if I shake this jar really hard, do you know how long it's going to take for that silt and sand to settle and the water to become clear? She said, from my experience, at least a couple hours. Well, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that same thing in the life of Moses. For years, he has been shaken up by experiences, by hurts. And out of those hurts have come hang-ups, which have turned into habits. God, for 40 years, brings Moses to a place of stillness, of shepherding sheep, yeah, there's danger in that. There's predators. I'm sure there were lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Well, maybe not tigers. But there were animals, right, that would come and attack the sheep and Moses would have to defend them. But overall, from a 40,000 foot view, it's a very quiet time compared, a, a time of silence, right, compared to Moses' previous years his first 40 years of life. And in that place of stillness, God provides an opportunity for Moses' soul, his mind, his heart, to settle. How did Moses see this period? We can only guess. But if it was you or me, we would probably see it as demotion, as setback that it came from our failure. But from God's perspective, it is preparation, necessary preparation for what is about to come. Here we already see God's faithfulness in preparing Moses to be ready for a, a greater uncovering of God's true identity and Moses' true identity. Okay, now we've come to Exodus chapter 3. Let's start reading here. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Let's stop there for a moment. Here we have a glimpse at what God has been doing in Moses. Here's a bush that he sees from afar that's not burning up, and he notices it. Now, he's living in the wilderness. He's out in the desert. I'm sure there are bushes that are burning at times. But yet Moses has the presence of mind to notice this bush in the distance that is burning, but it is not burning up. 
that's a slight difference. How long do you have to be observing a bush to notice that it is not burning up, that it is simply burning without consuming the bush? I believe it takes presence of mind. It takes being attuned to your circumstances, to be present in the moment. And this has happened to Moses. God has done this for Moses by settling him. And so, because of God's faithfulness, despite what Moses might think of God and himself, he is open and ready to see what God has for him. So Moses thought, I will go over it and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Once again, we see the work that God has already been doing in Moses through this period of stillness to prepare him to know God at some level that he will recognize the voice of God, which sometimes is hard to do in the midst of our daily lives, and then respond to his voice, which is a big deal. Again, there are many things that the enemy uses to cause us to see God through the lens of our hurts, to believe the lies of the enemy, and therefore we don't recognize God when he's speaking to us because we have bought into the lies of the enemy when it comes to God's identity. So this is already a big deal that Moses recognizes God's voice in the middle of the circumstances and response. So let's continue. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What is this all about? Let's think for a moment. What's going to happen when Moses takes off his sandals and begins walking around in his bare feet in the wilderness? What kind of terrain is he in? Sure, it's rocky. I'm sure there are sharp, not only rocks, maybe plants around, and besides wildlife, and he won't have his sandals to protect him. So, will that change the way Moses walks around before the presence of God? You betcha it will. He's going to walk much more carefully. He's going to slow down and pay attention in every step he takes. What happens when we slow down and pay attention? We're more attentive to seeing God's presence. Here in this moment, God's presence is there for Moses. It's there in the burning bush. He's already noticed it. And what God is saying to Moses is, I want you to keep paying attention. I'm always here. And as Moses does, as he slows down and starts to walk carefully in God's presence, recognizing God's presence, God reveals even more of who he is to Moses. Look at verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What is God saying to Moses here? He's saying, I've always been with your people, even though it doesn't look like it because of the present circumstances. I am your God. I'm with you. I've been watching out for every generation that's come before you right up to this moment, and therefore, I'm also going to be here for you. That's the implication. And at this, it says, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
he gets a glimpse of God's faithfulness and power. He gets a glimpse of the glory of God, clear view of who he is, and it changes things. Why does he hide his face? Well, maybe he's still dealing with those inner lies and he still is having a hard time believing what God is saying. That happens to all of us, doesn't it? We buy into the lies of the enemy so much that when God speaks to us, we have a hard time believing and we still want to run and hide from him. But look, God isn't done. He keeps coming after Moses for him to understand who he is. This is what God says next. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. He shows Moses his compassion. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I'm waiting for the termites to come in, but apparently not. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Let's stop right there and think for a moment. What is God revealing about his identity to Moses? He's showing Moses that he is present with his people always. It isn't enough, though, to just be present, because you can be present and not compassionate. But he's saying to Moses, I have not only seen my people's misery, I care and I have a plan. I have a plan in place and I have the power to do it. And not only do I have a plan and the power to orchestrate and f pull the trigger on that plan, but I also love to involve people in that plan. So now I'm sending you, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses is seeing how present God is, how compassionate he is, that he has a plan, he has the power to bring the plan into reality. So he's not only compassionate, he not only has the plan and the power to make it happen, he's a relational God who invites Moses to be a part of the plan. These are all glimpses that Moses gets of God's true identity in this moment. But he's still struggling with the lies. He has allowed the enemy to plant and grow from those hard places of hurt deep in the soil of his soul. Lies not only about God's identity, but his own identity because of what happened. Right? Maybe the pain of not being able to help his people has compounded, and maybe that lie is one of Moses feeling powerless. The lie that I am powerless. Maybe that's what has developed in him, and maybe that's what we see in this next few verses. The lies he believes in about himself and about God. Let's pick up where we left off at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I, it is I who have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This right here, what we just read, is one of the most famous statements in all of Scripture. God revealing his identity, the core of who he is, to Moses. And we'll unpack that a little bit in a moment. But first, we really have to look at how we got to this point of God revealing himself to Moses in such an intimate and dynamic way. Look back at the last few verses before this, 11, where Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That's a confession that Moses makes. We just talked about a little while ago how we see here that Moses has this insecurity about his identity. But the only reason we know that is because he confesses it to God. He brings what is internal out in a confession and brings it external. And he confesses yet again, right? In verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? The idea of a name is central to the person's identity and nature. To know a person's name is to know who they are, in, at least in the, in the ancient idea of it. And it's actually to have power. Power over that person, like in, in terms of those who practiced magic, they believed that they had power if they knew the name of a being. They had power over that being, like demons, to know a demon's name. And here we see Moses asking God, two, he's basically making two confessions. He is saying, I don't even know who I am. Who I am. Like, who am I that I could do this? And I don't know who you are. All of this has come from a place of stillness where he's had time to settle and be honest about where he is. And, and then out of that honesty comes two incredible confessions, two vulnerable confessions to God. And that, from that place, is where God responds to Moses with this intimate picture of God's identity. So now we can take a look at the picture, the portrait that God has painted for Moses when he says these words, I am who I am. This is how you are to reveal me to everyone. What does that mean? Another way of translating this, that which can be helpful, I think, for us is, is this. I am who I am or I will be what I will be. The idea of I am or I will be is being. What God is really revealing to Moses here is his eternal being, right? That he is self-contained existence within himself. Life exists eternally within God's nature. 
he needs nothing else from outside of himself to be. He is being itself. Unlike us as humans and everything else in existence, we need um, other things from outside of us to exist, survive, and even thrive. We need food. We need air. We need water. We need other relationships. We need, on every level, we need things from outside of ourselves. We do not have life within ourselves. We are dependent on things outside of ourselves to give us life. And God says to Moses, I am life itself. And there are profound things to know about this, about God, is that he is self-existent and he is life for Moses. This idea of I am who I am means also not only is God saying, I have life within myself, but I am here present with you for you, Moses, to be life for you. And it is an incredible thing of God saying, I am life, I need nothing else, and I give myself to you. I am always here, I am always present, and I am always life. I am everything you need. And this is an incredible revelation to Moses in this moment. God reveals the extent of his identity to Moses so that Moses can come to him and have the life that God wants him to have. He reveals his identity, showing Moses, I am life, and I am the giver of life to you, is essentially what he's saying, because I want to, I love to give you life. And that portrait of God's identity changes Moses' view of himself as well. Now, if he will receive this, he has everything he needs to go forward and be a part of the plan that he actually wants to be a part of all the way back from when he saw his own people suffering. He wanted to do something to help them. Now God's saying, now you can go. Now that you've come to this place of settledness at a deeper, more profound level, where you've settled in yourself enough to receive my identity at a deeper, more profound level. Now you can go in that place, in that knowledge of who I am. And now you can see who you are. As I reveal myself to you, now you can go and reflect that to the people around you. Just recently, as I've been processing all of this, I've come to a new definition of sin. And I think it's helpful for what we're talking about here. If you had asked me just a few months ago what my definition of sin is, I would tell you it is distrust, distrust in God. And while I still believe that's true, I think I have a more complete definition of sin. At least for me, it's more complete. And the way I can frame this up for you that helps us understand what's happening with Moses is this. Think about darkness. What is darkness? Darkness is actually nothing. It isn't something. It's the absence of something. 
Darkness is the absence of light. And in the same way, sin is really nothing. Sin is the absence of God's love. And in this moment, Moses sees everything that he's been going through, all of his struggles, his hurts, his habits, his hang-ups, and really in the order of his hurts leading to his hang-ups, leading to his habits, are actually not about anything other than what's missing. The sin that exists there is actually a vacuum. The things he did, the hurt he felt, and his inability to deal with it, which led to the enemy coming in and lying to him about God's identity and his identity and his making an agreement with those lies, which created these hang-ups in him and these habits, all of that comes from the vacuum that exists because he didn't know God's love in a profound way. He didn't have God's identity, an experience of God's love. It was what was missing. Not head knowledge, but an experience. And in this moment for Moses, here before the burning bush, that vacuum has been filled in a profound way for him in that moment. Not fully. If we were to keep reading, we would see he had struggles to believe God, to believe in himself and what who God says he is. But it was a first step and a huge profound step that led to further steps where he became more and more open to receiving who God says Moses is by first believing, receiving and believing who God says he is. And we see that journey continue the rest of his life. But this is a profound moment for him. And how did he get here? That's what's critical for us. He got to a moment where he began the journey of recovering God's identity and his identity through God's perspective. And he got here to this place through stillness. And I think that is a lesson we, the church in America, at least in the West, could really benefit from paying attention to, pondering, and practicing. Why is that so difficult for us to be still, as the scripture says, to be still and know that I am God? Why is it so difficult? Because inherently when we get still, the voices we've been running from, the lies that we buy into, rise up to the surface. The lies about who God is. The lies about who we are. In my case, that I'm a disappointment. And we are doing our best to run away from those voices and not realizing what we're really running away from is God. We're hiding. And we're doing everything we can to avoid dealing with this because it hurts so much. We're stuck there in our hurt. But stillness is this beautiful place of healing, as we see with Moses, learning to be still before God. And then, as those voices rise up, pay attention to them and actually challenge them. Challenge the voices that say we're powerless, we're a failure, we're this, we're that whatever that those lies are saying to us, to pay attention to that lie or lies 
which are rising up in us as we sit in stillness. As they do, we can do this. We have, we have the power to take those lies, the God-given power to take those lies and present them to him and just confess, as Moses did, confess the lies that we're buying into. Is this, this is how I feel right now. God, I feel anxious, like a failure. I feel powerless, unlovable, whatever it might be. We bring those to God in the stillness. For me, it, it's become a very relaxing practice, and that's really what God has for us. He wants us to relax, rest, and receive. That's what our prayer life can look like in stillness. Here's what I've been practicing lately, which I hope will help you see how restful this is. I used to prayer walk two hours every morning, go through different neighborhoods, and as I walked through the neighborhoods, I would pray, Go, you know, walking house to house, I would pray for different people. During the last three months where I've had this break, God said, I, I want you to stop doing that. That's not actually restful for you anymore. So I've been coming down into my garage in my house in the mornings and sitting with God in silence. And instead of praying a lot of words, which I have a tendency to do, I've just started with one question. God, where has your presence been there for me in the last 24 hours? And then it's really up to him. This is the restful part. Then in stillness and silence, it's up to him to bring the memories to mind so I can see over the last 24 hours where he was working in my life, where I can see, like Moses, I can see God at work. I can see his identity at work in my life, see who he is through what he's been doing. And even the moments I missed it in the last 24 hours, sometimes he brings those to mind as well. And what's beautiful about that is that it's worship both ways for me. Sometimes God allows a memory to rise up to the, in the surface of my consciousness that's one where I was aware of his presence in the last 24 hours. And that's great. I worship him over that. And, and that place of worship is is a response. It's not me trying to generate worship, trying to make something up. It's a genuine response to what he's revealed. And if, you, if a, a memory rises up into my consciousness that's one where I missed him, but he's showing that to me now, even though I missed it then, I get to see it now. And that brings a response of worship from the center of who I am. All of that's restful. All of that's up to God. So this is where stillness helps us begin to see who God is. And as we begin to see who God is for us, as he reveals who he is for us, we begin to see the reflection of who we are through that. As he begins to show me what he's been doing for me, I get to see myself as beloved. And there's our true identity. There's God's true identity right there. He is perfect love. And we are perfectly loved. That's our identity. And this is what stillness brings about. Now, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to sit and just say, God, where, 
Where have you been there for me? Where's your presence been there in the last 24 hours? And allow him to reveal it and then respond in worship and get a greater understanding of who we are. However, I know from experience, as we've already talked about, sitting in stillness, other things rise up first. Anxiety. Shame. Disappointments. Insecurity. All of these things rise up in me. What I've learned to do is when they rise up is to ask the question again. Is not fight with them. Is just to ask another question. God, where are you in this right here? And be still and let him show me where these feelings are coming from. What's the source of these hang-ups? What's the source of these emotional reactions I'm having? What's the hurt underneath? And what are the lies that I believed? I just asked the question, okay, God, where are you in this? What is all of this about? And I allow him to reveal it to me. And whatever comes to the surface, like Moses, I confess. I confess whatever's coming up to God. So right now we see a practice of stillness, worship, confession, in a way that is much less effort on our behalf and more God's power and effort working for us. We're just in a place of resting, relaxing, and receiving. And as these things come up and I confess them, then I ask him to show me the lies underneath that I've agreed with, the enemy's lies that I've agreed with, and I ask him to cancel them. And I invite God into those spaces in that territory where I have been buying into the lies. He would come in and show me a greater understanding of who he is. And then I command any spirits who have been messing with me, who have taken territory, the spirits I've agreed with and have had footholds in my life, then I command them to leave, to let go of that territory and leave me. I'm not talking about possession here. I'm talking about me willingly making agreements with the enemy and now me willingly canceling those agreements inviting the Holy Spirit into those places where I once bought into lies and commanding the spirits who have been manipulating in those spaces to leave, to have no more influence in my life. This is what I believe recovery looks like. This is what I believe is the center of recovery. And this is what I believe God is inviting you and me, all of us, into. What is recovery? It is recovering God's identity and our identity. How do we do it? We do it through stillness, worship, confession, cancellation or renouncing, and commanding spirits to leave. And as we do that more and more, we find this place of rest, relaxation, and receiving all God, who he is, and what he has for us. And we get a clearer picture as everything settles. This is what Moses was growing into for 40 years and beyond. We begin to settle into the identity of God and our identity. And everything becomes clear, 
more and more clear it's a journey but it grows to become more and more clear and we grow in our, the power that we have in him and this is what the enemy is afraid of because from that place now we enter into his kingdom of darkness remember darkness is nothing it is the absence of light and we are the light we begin to believe we really are the light we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we can walk forward into darkness into the absence of light and bring light there. We can walk forward into places of sin, the absence of love, and bring love there. This is the purposes that God has for us. But first, it comes down to knowing our identity and practicing our identity through stillness, worship, confession, cancellation, and commanding spirits to leave in ourselves first. I hope this has been helpful for you today. I pray that it's been helpful for you today. And if you have any questions about all of this, I would love to help you because part of this process, right, is that we can't do it alone. That's the other thing. We need other people around us. I have spiritual directors. I have accountability partners. I have friends that walk with me that I am very vulnerable with. What you hear tonight, you may say, he's been pretty authentic and transparent. It's because I practice that with people close to me. I need, we need that. So we, can, we need other people to speak into us and help us uncover the lies. The story I told you about the jar with the dirt and you know the sand and the water comes from the wife of my spiritual director. He and I meet every two weeks on the phone. If, you're, if you need help, if you're looking for someone to help you walk this out, we would love for you to contact us. If you want, you have questions about what we're talking about, if you disagree or, or you just want advice, and if you want to support this ministry, we would love for you, for all of those reasons, any of those reasons, we would love for you to contact us. And here is the email address that you can get, uh, you can become in contact with us. It is lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com. Please, please reach out. If, this, if, if anything we talked about today is resonating with you, reach out and let us know. If it is resonating with you and you want to support what we're doing, definitely reach out. If, you, if it's resonating with you and you want further information or you want help in taking next steps, definitely reach out. We would love to hear from you. And one last thing, if this show has had any kind of impact on you, been an influence for you, would you please spread the word? There are more people out there that need to hear what God is doing through us, through Life Hurts, God Heals, and we look to you to help us spread the word. Would you do that for us? Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And I look forward to what God is going to continue to do in the coming weeks. There's more to come. And until then, may I just pray a blessing over you right now? If you can, just take a deep breath in. And let that be your invitation for God to reveal himself to you, to come fill up 
every missing place where you have yet to experience his identity and his love for you. And then just exhale out with a deep breath, releasing any anxiety, any fear, any insecurity or shame, any sense of failure you have right now. Just let it go. God, in this place, we ask you to reveal yourself to us. Where are you right here in our lives? Where is your presence available to us right now? Will you please make yourself known to us in a deeper, more profound way? Would you point out the lies that we are buying into so that we can confess them, renounce them, cancel them, and command those spirits that are lying to us to leave and have no more influence on us? Would you help us practice this stillness and worship, confession, cancellation, and commanding in the next week? Will you lead us? Will you initiate this in a way that we will see you in the process? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. God bless you.